This has been a dream come true. We've been praying for uh, the English service for a while. I'm sure some of you guys that have been in our English information sessions, you guys have known that we've been, you know, trying to pull this through for the last couple of years. And finally, we are here. We have arrived. And I see a bunch of Cubs fans and Bears fans and uh, life is good. Bulls fans too, right? Uh, I'm glad that you guys are here. We are going to continue doing this as long as the Lord permits. I'm glad that to see you guys here. Man, for waking up at 9 a.m., you guys deserve a round of applause to you. 9 a.m. Actually, you guys had to wake up probably like at 8.30, right, to get ready, or maybe 8.45 for the guys. But we've been uh, in huge discussion these last, uh, let me just give you a little bit of background before we get actually started in this. We've been preaching here in Spanish for 28 years, 28 years in Cicero, Illinois, and we've been battling this infamy of the Al Capone town, correct? If you know anything about Cicero, the only thing you know about Cicero is it's Al Capone's town. I, I actually have taken pictures in front of Al Capone's mom's house on 16th Avenue, on 16th Street. So uh, it's been infamously known for bad politics, Al Capone, corruption. But we've been here for 28 years as a church trying, and not in our strength, but we've been praying We've been faithfully serving our community, spreading the gospel in Spanish for 28 years, hoping that one day God's justice reigns here in Cicero. I think if, if you believe that, uh, you believe in the word of God, you know that God one day will bring justice. We may not see it soon. We may think it's uh, far off away, but, but God is good, and we trust that God will one day do what he has to do, even in Cicero. We can have the best schools, right? Now that I have kids, I've been looking at school systems, and uh, it's been kind of depressing seeing that Cicero schools are like at one or two. And I, and I tell myself, why can't we get Cicero schools up to five, six, seven, eight, or nine, or tens? But anyway, that's just kind of a little bit of a background, historical background of our church here in Cicero. We've been here for 28 years, and we're going to be here for another 30, 40 years, if the Lord permits. And hopefully now, we're going to be doing it in English for the very first time. So that's why I'm super excited to dig in, dig in hardcore, right? And uh, part of what we do, if you haven't been here for our information sessions, part of what we do and what we, what we are is we gather, we worship God because he deserves worship. We got to get out of this mentality that church is about me and that church is to fulfill my needs. Uh, sometimes it can be, we can fall into that where we, we want you to come to church so you can feel good and feel good about yourself and say, okay, I got that out of the way. I can, the, the rest of the week, I can do whatever the heck I want. Uh, now uh, I'll, I'll wait for next week to repent and ask for forgiveness. We're going to get that out of the way. Church has never been about us. It's always been about the glory of God. And when we gather as people together, that's the most beautiful essence of worship. When we gather together, this right here is beautiful before God. And, and we cannot forget that when we gather together, we are before God. And so as a people, that's kind of what we always want to strive for and understand that God is first. We worship God, and then we worship him by learning what he says. And I've said this a million times in our Spanish service as well as part of our English sessions, that you don't come here to listen to me or whoever else is going to be here. Sometimes we're going to have different speakers, pastors come in and preach. But you don't come here necessarily for the person that's going to be here. You come here because you learn and you're going to focus on what the word of God says. 
In reality, I have nothing good to say. I, I, I'm, 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 I'm just a man. But when we learn from Scripture, that's what causes transformation. The Word. God's Word. And so what we emphasize here in, in Vida Abundante, you could call it Vida if you can't say the Abundante in Spanish. Just call it Vida. And we've been trying to change the name, but we're just like, as eh, we've been around for so long, let's just figure out an English way or have some, uh, an English accent to it or something. But we've been here teaching God's Word faithfully, and that's what we want you guys to take away. If you guys leave here knowing what the Word of God says, that's good. So throughout these six months, we've been in our Spanish service dissecting, getting deep into the book of Colossians. So if you do have a Bible, just open it up in the book of Colossians or look it up on your Bible app. Download it if you don't have a Bible app. You may want to free up some space by deleting Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or Snapchat, if that's still around, uh, and free up some space and get a Bible in there, which is a lot better, has a lot more better things to say than what your friends have to say on Facebook. But anyway, look it up, Colossians, and now we've got to the last chapter in Colossians. We are now finalizing this letter in chapter 4. There's been four brief chapters, but in these brief chapters, we've learned so much. And so I urge you guys to go back home and when you have time during the week, actually read the first three chapters and see what we've been kind of uh, talking about in, for the past six months here in Vida Abundante or in Vida. So l learn and, and read it and kind of motivate yourself to, to read three chapters. You guys could read three pages. I think in a week, it's easy enough. Even if you're not a reader, you can read three pages of scripture, just so you guys could get familiarized with what the concepts we've been preaching about. But now we are in chapter 4, and we're going to be from reading from verses 2 through 6, but we're only going to be focusing on verse 2 today. And next week, we're going to keep going, and from now on, we're just going to be uh, straight deep into scripture. But I'm going to read to you the, the context of chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, and we'll focus only on verse 2. So here we go, chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, and I'm reading from the ESV. So if your version is a little bit different, just know that I'm reading from the ESV. It says this, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in, in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also, pray, pray also for us that God may open us to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on the account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So at the end of the letter, what we're going to be focusing on is this small verse at the beginning, prayer. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. If you can imagine a man sitting down, and if you don't know the context of, of Colossians, here we have Paul the Apostle, this man who has been imprisoned for preaching the gospel, for teaching about Christ in a world of philosophy and of, and, and of a lot of humanistic thought. In a mystical world, this man has been imprisoned, chained up, and is locked up in a dungeon and possibly has been transferred over now to a house cell where he is now um, living off the rest of his life in prison, or he doesn't know until how much longer. So visualize somebody sitting in jail, imprisoned, writing this letter. So immediately you'll have a little bit of kind of context of, of how you can take this letter. 
How would you be if you were writing a letter in prison? You would, most of us, at least in my case, I'd be scared out of my mind. I'd be uh, frightened. I'd be nervous. I'd be uh, depressed because I'm in jail. I can't see my kids. I can't experience life. I don't know what's going on in the world. All of these things are in this man's life. But he's finalizing this letter to this church in Colossae, and he's letting them know the importance of prayer. Now, you and I have heard about prayer a lot, especially if we have one of those very religious mothers that we grew up with. A lot of us grew up with religious mothers that would always be praying and making us pray and forcing us to pray, even when we didn't want to or didn't even know how to. Here, come on, pray, pray, pray. You got to pray. You got to pray. We even had 90s songs uh, come up with themes on prayer. It's just been all over the place. So we kind of, uh, we see it said at uh, 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 award ceremonies. We see prayer said at graduation ceremonies. Prayer is just kind of like this thing that people throw around because it's kind of what the American culture does. Little by little, though, it's getting deleted and depleted from American culture. But it's just kind of something in the back of our minds. We don't pay too much attention to it. But Paul, on the other hand, speaking to this church in Colossae, raises this emphasis. I mean, he's, this is the last chapter of the letter. This is his greetings. Like, I mean, his farewell. Usually at the end of a letter, when you're writing something, you kind of want to focus in on the most important part of what you really want to say. And for Paul, for a people of God, for a church of Christ, one of the most basic elements is prayer. Now, maybe you might have to unlearn a lot of the concepts that you have on prayer, like what prayer really is, or, or maybe you, you just got uh, formed incorrectly in prayer. You may have rehearsed certain prayers your whole life, and you kind of think that that's just prayer, or when you go to, to eat in the morning, you just say, you know, this is my prayer of the day, I'm going to eat for my, I mean, I'm going to pray for my McMuffin here, and that's about it, uh, and, that, and you consider that prayer. But I want you kind of to learn that and, and focus on not what I teach about prayer, but what does the Word of God say about prayer? Specifically, what does Paul say about our lives of prayer? So, in these brief minutes, I'm going to try to really dig in on this one verse and teach you the concept of prayer. What does the Bible say about prayer and why you and I should be people of prayer? So one of the first things that we see here is Paul's emphasis, continue steadfastly. That's an old term, but it basically means perseverance. Persevere in what? In prayer. You guys understand what perseverance is, correct? It's something, it's hard work, it's continuous. But Paul says this, persevere, not only that, Paul says, be watchful, not only that, he says, be thankful. So here are three ingredients, my friends, for what effective prayer looks like. You want to have an effective prayer life? You want to know what the Bible says about prayer? Here's what it says. It has to be perseverant. It has to be watchful. And it has to be thankful or with an attitude of gratefulness, of thankfulness. So we're going to dissect the first term right here today. And we're going to try to finish off all three terms today. I'm going to try to do that in these brief minutes that we have left. But I'm going to focus in on the first one, steadfast or perseverance. 
What does that mean to persevere in prayer? What does that mean for me to be a person that perseveres in prayer? And then you got to imagine, you have Paul here sitting in prison, chained up, locked up, teaching the church in Colossae. You, as a church, have to be perseverant in prayer. You guys have to persevere, be constant in prayer. Why? Why does he say that? And why is he teaching him that, teaching them that? One of the main things that Paul focuses focuses in on, and you'll see this in the rest of his letters when we get to them, but prayer in itself has that essence of battle. Prayer is a form of testing of the patience because you and I, as fallen creatures, we've all were born into sin, and we all have this nature of wanting things done our way. I don't know if you can relate to that a little bit, but Especially if you're married, you kind of want things to get done your way, correct? And you have your husband that says, no, I got my way of doing things. The wife says, no, I got my way of doing things. And you guys have to figure out, all right, so how are we going to get this done? Because we both want something else. So prayer battles that from the get-go because it implies perseverance. It implies a battle. And so Paul says, of prayer, you have to make a habit. Perseverance is this, making a habit of prayer, practicing prayer, being persistent in prayer. It isn't just something you mumble off in the morning. It is a habit that you continue in on a daily basis. Now, one thing I want you guys to get away from or, or kind of get it out of your head is this discipline of, play, of prayer. We sometimes as Christians and even as, uh, as just normal people that have not been to church in a while, we kind of have heard the discipline of prayer. You have to discipline yourself to pray. So what do people do? Okay, I got to discipline myself. I have to wake up at 5 o'clock every morning and I at least got to pray for 10 minutes just so I can be disciplined in my prayer. Or I have to pray every time I come back from work or during lunch. At least I got to discipline myself to be in prayer at 12 o'clock before I eat, whatever that case may be. But you realize little by little that you don't enjoy it at all. A lot of us don't enjoy the disciplines of something. A lot of us are overweight like myself. Because we don't enjoy the discipline of eating correctly. We don't enjoy the discipline of exercising daily. We don't enjoy those disciplines. And when we do them, we do them, but we're like uh, begrudgingly having to wake up to do exercise. Who wants to do that? Prayer has to be, that has to be taken out of the context of prayer. Because then you're going to grow up in a church where you're never going to love to pray. And Paul is telling us to pray. And if we are told to pray and we don't love it, then when we do it, it's not going to be effective. But Paul emphasizes this as the Christian life. We read in three of his letters, he writes, uh, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. That's Romans chapter 12, verse 12. He writes this in Ephesians chapter 6, 18, praying at all times. And then Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing without ceasing. Don't stop praying. So for Paul, this is a very important aspect of the Christian life. Prayer. It's constant. Where does Paul learn this? He learns this from Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ himself in, in Luke chapter 18, he talks about this parable 
about a judge and a widow. And he talks about how this widow um, is consistently asking the judge for, for justice on her life. And, and, and Jesus opens up that, that parable by saying, and he told them a parable to, to the effect that they ought to always to be in prayer and not lose heart. Jesus himself understood the fact that people had to be persistent in prayer. If you read John chapter 18, verse 2, Jesus, uh, he, he, they fo- John focuses on Jesus always going separately to a certain place to pray. It was part of Jesus' life. And that's why in this parable, the widow keeps bothering the king, being persistent. It's the same word that we read in Colossians chapter 2. She keeps bothering or being persistent or constant to the king. And then Jesus says this in verse 7. Will not God give justice to the elect who cry day and night? Letting the people know that be persistent because God listens. You're not, see this is what separates us from the rest of the religions in the world. We're not praying to to something that can't hear us. We're praying to our God, the creator of heavens and earth. And he listens. And if we don't believe that, then, you know, in reality, then, you know, this is a huge waste of time. I mean, church literally is a big waste of time. If there is no creator, if there is no God, brother, you and me could be sleeping right now, enjoying our bed and eating some huevos rancheros. Or I don't know what, what you guys eat, but that's what I like to eat. But there is a God. If the Bible is real and we believe that it is, there is a God And that God and the reality of that God is that he inclines his ears to listen to his people. And friends, that's you and me. That's you and that's me. And we get to delight in that. So it's persistence in that. It talks about pain. It talks about waiting. It talks about being insistent. It talks about faith. Prayer is hardly ever instantaneous. It isn't, God, I need this done. Did it happen? God, give me the lottery numbers. Did it happen? God, get me through college with straight A's. Did it happen? Prayer is rarely instantaneous. And that's why Paul says be persistent. Persist, persist, persist. We've had a lot of counseling couples come, and they ruined their marriage for 20 years. They live in a wrecked home for 25 years, and they come to the pastors, and they say, help us with our marriage. And they expect that in one visit, in one prayer, their 25 years of ruined marriage is going to be fixed. Like, hey, you guys prayed for us and nothing happened. Like, he's still a dog. And she's still a nag. And nothing happened. And it's like prayer is rarely instantaneous. And that's why Paul emphasizes persistence, persistence, persistence. Keep on. Remain steadfast. That's what prayer implies. And this was very instrumental for the early church as well. The early church persisted in prayer. In the book of Acts, you'll read that the church was persistent in prayer. And then we get to see the amazing things of the church in Acts. Why did the church of Acts love people so much? Why did people flock to the church in Acts? The Bible talks to us in, in, in Acts chapter 2 that, that, in, that when the people gathered, the church gathered Hundreds of people would show up, and and you ask yourself, why? 
What was so different about that church? And we realize that in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 4 and chapter 6 of Acts, the church persisted daily in prayer. You know what happened to those people? Those people began to be selfless. They began to give away their things. They began to, to share with others their wealth. They began, if they had two homes, the Bible says that they would sell one of their homes and, and give the money to the poor. They were being active with their brothers and sisters because prayer changes you. Prayer humbles you and changes you and makes you completely codependent on who God is. That's what prayer does, and that's why Paul is very clear. Be persistent in prayer. A lot of us need internal change. Some of us think that we're perfect beings and that we're a blessing to this world, that we are a gift to this world, and that you don't need anything. Well, before the eyes of God, we are poor and naked, and we need him. One of the re re ways we can be satisfied in life, if, if we can get there, is being humble before God's throne, humble before God's face and presence, saying that we need him. Prayer, my friends, does that. Prayer also means, being persistent in prayer also means that we trust God. Once again, we come back to that understanding, is God real? Is there a God? Now, I know this isn't a, an apologetic sermon or, or this isn't a, a, a time to discuss is God real or not. However, if he is, and if we're going to come here together on a church Sunday morning, I mean, we, we have to kind of think that there is a God. Maybe you don't know completely, but in the back of your mind, you kind of say, well, I think there has to be a God. And most of us that are Christian or sons of God can say, there is a God. And if this God is real, then we can pray to him because the Bible teaches, especially in the apostle uh, John, he says in 1 John chapter 5, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And then he says, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. But you got to understand, it says, if we ask according to his will, it's not according to my will. We want a lot of things, but God wants a lot of things for us. And when we ask him to give us what he wants for us, then it will be given. God's not our genie. God's not our, our uh, you know, our eight ball and ask him and, and it will be granted. It, God will give us what he has in plan for us. But we just got to ask for it. And I know that you know God has better plans than yours. If God is God, God's plans are way better than yours. But Jonathan, I, man, I got my, my, my life mapped out for me. By the time I'm 35, I'm going to make my first million. By the time I'm 40, I'm going to have three houses in, 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 in South Beach. I'm going to have some, some vacation homes in, in, in Mexico. I'm going to have this. By the time I'm 55, I'm going to be retired, and I'm going to be in my Corvette or in my Porsche. By the time I'm 60, I'm going to... And you may have some very good plans, but brother and sister, God's plans, because he's God, are a lot better. A lot better. He may want you to live in Mexico in a mission field. 
not in your three-story mansion, but serving kids in poverty. So God's plans are always better. We may not like God's plans, but they're always going to be better than ours. Here's another thing about prayer, being persistent in prayer. It keeps us humble because we know that we need God. Humbleness reflects that we need God. We don't have things under control as much as you and I would love to believe so. I have everything under control. At the end of the day, we realize that we do not have things under control. You look at our if you look at your bank account, is your bank account under control? Is your spending habit under control? Look at the things around us. How is, how is our life? And we think that we do have things under control, but in reality, we don't. And so what prayer does is maintains us humble before God, knowing that we need him. Paul, at the start of this verse, says, be persistent. Be steadfast. That's a verbal imperative. That is saying, this is not an option for the church. This is not an option for Christian people. This isn't, eh, if you want to pray, cool. If you don't, that's cool too. No, this is a verbal imperative. This is a demand from Paul to the church. Be persistent. It's indispensable for the Christian life. But what else is part of effective prayer. We have the persistent thing down, correct? We kind of understand that, at least to a certain extent, we have to be persistent in prayer. Persevere and persevere. Keep battling, keep fighting, keep asking. The other thing he mentions is continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful. That's another word that we want to dissect today. What does that mean, being watchful? And, and if we understand, uh, if we want to take get to understand this a little bit better, this word watchful is in, in, in itself implies being vigilant, being on guard, being alert. In its most basic sense, it means being awake and alive. But you're vigilant, you're awake, you're alert, you're watching out, you're on guard. It's like when you're in high school and you're dating your boyfriend and he's talking to another girl, you're on guard. You're vigilant. That, that implies surveillance. Not only are we supposed to be praying, but because prayer is consistently an act, and asking God, being watchful, accompanies it because we are also alert. If you're like me, I've fallen asleep in prayer. I've woken up early some days and said, I'm going to pray. Thank you, God. And you're good. And it happens. That's not the type of prayer Paul is advocating for. Paul says, being watchful. What does that imply? When you're watchful, when you're vigilant, when you're aware, when you're on surveillance, what does that imply? There's stuff going on around that can be dangerous. I love how Paul and his study of Scripture and then in the study of knowing who Christ is, not only was Paul taught by Christ himself for three years. But Paul hangs out with this figure named Luke. And Luke shares this story of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And Luke kind of takes a little bit of the writings from Matthew, the other gospel, and because Matthew was a direct disciple, and, and, and we read from Luke and Matthew this concept of prayer in Gethsemane. And Paul, I could imagine Paul having conversations with Luke because he was there and present at the same time, having these conversations with, with, with Luke about this very story. If you want to just briefly turn there, you'll find it in the first book of the New Testament, Matthew. We're not going to spend too much time on it, but I just want you guys to see it while I, while I uh, speak through it quickly. Matthew chapter 26. Here we have Paul learning what it means to be vigilant in prayer. If he's going to get an example of being vigilant in prayer, he better get it from the best source, and Jesus Christ is that source. Here's what Paul is saying in, about being awake and being vigilant and being alive in prayer. If you look at Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 and on, we have the story of Jesus on his way to be betrayed. After the Last Supper, he's with his group of disciples, and then he takes three of his this inner circle of disciples, and he's about to get betrayed by the famous Judas. It's just interesting to me knowing that on his way to be betrayed, Jesus went to prayer. And he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, a typical place where Jesus would go. If you read the Gospels, and like I said in John chapter 18, that was the place where Jesus would most often go. So picture this, Jesus knowing he was going to be betrayed, thrown in prison, beaten, slashed, crucified, goes to a place where he can be easily found. He's not hiding. You and I would have crossed the border a long time ago. We would have eaten that last supper and said, peace, I'm out. They're about to get me. Jesus goes to a place where is expected of him to go because he's always in prayer and he goes there, and in verse 38, what does Jesus re reflect from his inner pain? He says, my soul is very sorrowful. And then what does he say later on in the verse? Watch with me. Jesus goes to pray, and he tells Peter, James, and John, watch with me. That's the same Greek word used in, that Paul uses in, in Colossians. That's where he got it from. Watch, be vigilant, be awake, be alert, be on surveillance. Jesus tells his disciples, watch with me as I pray. What happens? Verse 40, and he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. Say with me, sleeping. Even when you say it, you kind of just want to sleep, don't you? Sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Jesus was saying, could you not be vigilant with me for one hour? And then verse 41 says this, watch and pray. There it is again, the combination of prayer and watching, watching and praying, prayer and watching. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. What, what does that mean? I mean, this is Jesus about to be crucified. A couple verses later, Judas shows up, kisses him. And he gets taken away. What does this mean? Watch and pray with me that you may not enter into temptation. What, what is Jesus doing? What is he saying? 
Is he afraid of Judas? Is he afraid of being thrown in jail? And that's why he's telling his disciples, watch. So if you see him coming, you could gain up on them and tell me so I can leave or escape. No. Jesus is emphasizing the frailty of humanity. And this is why Paul is so clear. Friends, this is why prayer is so needed in our lives. Because humanity, our flesh, our inner organs even, are frail and weak. Some of us can't even hold our hunger for three hours. Some of us here that didn't eat breakfast are already like, oh my God, I'm starving. When is this guy going to be quiet? I want to go eat. I want to go to Denny's. I want to go to IHOP. Uh, and some of us can't even control that. That's Jesus is showing the frailty of humanity. They fell asleep. And Jesus is saying, be watchful so that you may not fall into temptation. What Jesus is saying in the, later, in, the, in the earlier verse 39, is that the cup is going to be poured over him. What does that cup mean? It means the divine wrath of God, his Father, is going to fall upon Jesus. He sees that coming. He's not afraid of Judas. He's not afraid of getting thrown in jail. He's not afraid of any of that stuff. What he's being watchful for is that the complete anger and wrath of his father is going to fall completely on him and he wants to make sure that he can stand before that. How do we know that? Verse 39 says, my father, if possible. What is Jesus saying? If there is another way, let this cup pass from me. What, what cup is he talking about? The wrath of God. This is, this is one of the most interesting places in the Bible where we read of Jesus' humanity, that he was really human. But then in his humanity and in his weakness, this is the perfect Christ that we have. Even after saying that, Jesus says, but not my will, your will. Even in his flesh, in his human nature, asking God, is there another way? But then realizing that there is no other way. And he says, your will be done, not ours. So the reason for praying and watching is because there's a spiritual battle over our lives. And that's why Jesus said, pray and watch that you may not fall into temptation. Friends, Temptation abounds. Temptation is all over the place. That's why married couples get divorced like this. That's why they don't last more than a year. That's why adultery, fornication, sex, drugs, rock and roll, and that, that's why all of this fame at, at a young age can lead to depression that will eventually lead to suicide as what's been going on this past year. Millions or hundreds of people and then famous people committing suicide because they can't hang. They can't hold on to everything that's come before them. Temptation is out there, friends. And the only way you and I are going to be able to face it, you think we're going to be able to face it on our own? Say, man, come, come, at, come at me. I got you. Uh-uh, friend. On our knees, 
humbled before a great God that can provide us the strength to face temptation and stare it down. Jesus' disciples couldn't do it. But Jesus showed them, while you guys were asleep, I was praying. While you guys weren't watching, I was watching. And I stood my ground. And if it wasn't, if it wasn't for those hours of prayer and throughout Jesus' life, what else would he have said? But it's those prayers and it's that watchful character that maintained Jesus on the cross. Calvin says he was entering an extreme battle. He was about to fight. And he needed to maintain himself faithful. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak, says Jesus. You and I know that our flesh is weak. And even though we want to be good people, right? I just, I, I want to, I'm trying to be good, man. I, I mean, I, I love cocaine. I love the crack. I love the gangs. I love the women. I love, I'm trying. I'm trying my best. We desperately, a lot of us want to be good. But though we want to, our flesh pulls us back. But it is in prayer and a watchful spirit that we can face those temptations. We have to be spiritually and mentally alert. We have to be watchful, what Paul is implying. We have to be watchful against temptation. We have to be alert and persistent so that we can have the necessary tools to face temptation. And especially in the context of Colossians, what Paul is implying as well is for them to be watchful against false teachings. We have false teaching in Colossians chapter 2 and chapter 3. And what Paul is saying is, well, when you pray and you're and you're alert, you're going to know all this extra nonsense that's going to come at you, and you're going to be able to resist that. So you have to be watchful in prayer. And finally, the last aspect, and not, certainly not the least, but one of the last aspects of effective prayer, if you go back now to Colossians, just want you to read it one more time. What's the last aspect of prayer, of effective prayer? He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with, with what? With what? Are you guys watchful right now? With thanksgiving. There you go. It's coming up in November. With thanksgiving. Being grateful. That's interesting. And here we have prayer being persistent, grinding, in the grind, in the move. Then being watchful, vigilant. There's danger all around us. There's temptation all around us. And then it says, be thankful. As you're doing that, this is a, a, a noun that is modified by that verb of being persistent. So how am I going to be persistent? Paul says, with Thanksgiving. With a thankful heart, you can remain persistent. So visualize this. You're praying. You're active. You're in, you're in the battle. You're, you're going at it. You're, you're, you're asking God to help you face temptation. You're being alert. You're being watchful. 
And the whole time you're doing it, you're thanking God. You're grateful. You're saying, thank you, God. You're saying, I love you for everything that you've done in my life. While you're doing all of that, your spirit and your heart is reflecting a grateful attitude. Because in the essence, in biblical prayer, the majority of the time, it is implied that prayer is a petition. You're asking God. That's why Jesus said, ask, 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 seek, and you will find. Ask, ask, ask. So as a petitional prayer, in moments of prayer, what we're basically doing is seeking God, petitioning, asking, and in that asking, we are grateful. Why? Because we maintain ourselves grateful even if the results have not yet arrived. Even if the results are not the results we want. This kind of means a grateful spirit in moments of uncertainty. It means that we know God is listening. We're thankful and we're grateful because we have the creator of the universe is listening to somebody like you and somebody like me. Why would anyone listen to somebody like me? It surprises me every Sunday morning when when hundreds of people fill this auditorium and they're listening to somebody like me. At the end, I realize they're not listening to me. They're listening to the word of God. But you have the audience of one before the throne of God. You're speaking and God is listening. It's hard to get your own wife to listen to you sometimes. But you have the attention of God before you. You're grateful for that because you're his son, you're his daughter, and he is your father. You're grateful because you know that God has everything under control. Even when everything seems out of control. God has them under control. And and what Paul is really emphasizing in this grateful spirit is you're remembering everything God has already done in your life. This is one of the greatest aspects of the Christian life. That The stuff that we sang earlier today, I mean, that's why we sing it. We don't sing it just to, like, get you guys to go like this. We sing it because it means something. God has done the work in our lives. What did he do? He made me from a wretched person, a wretched sinner, and he turned me into a son of righteousness, of light. What does Colossians chapter 1, verse 12 say? He transferred me over from the darkness into the realm of light. I was a sinner. I was disgusting. I was a perverted person. I was everything I should not have been. And in that disgusting state of being, God, without any pre-qualifications, I didn't need to qualify for God's love. God graciously pulled me out of my filth. And that's why Paul says, be thankful. Many times we're angry in our prayers. God, why don't you listen? God, come on, God, come on, God. And we forget, man, look at what God has already done in your life. Later on in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, it has been by your grace is why I am here. Your grace is enough, God. Our prayers have to be with 
thanksgiving. He has delivered us from darkness. He has transferred us over into light. And then he tells us in Colossians 14 that there is an inheritance. Chapter 114, there is an inheritance for us. We're grateful. We're persistent. We're alert. And we're grateful because God has done the work in our lives. You and I can approach God's throne because he has provided a way. Can you believe that? You, stand, you can stand before the throne of God without any shame. That's, I mean, I don't know, religion doesn't do that. But you and I, right now, can go face to face with God and not be ashamed. You look at yourself, you're like, me? You, you look at what you've done? You look at your past? You say, nah, I, I gotta like, I gotta do all these things at church, man. I gotta give money. I gotta baptize myself, sprinkle some water on me. I gotta be praying now. And, and man, once you realize that God has called you from darkness into light, bro, you got no other pre qualifications to get through. You're a son of God. And as a son, you can stand before your father. What more gratefulness do we have to express? So to sum up tonight, or today, prayer, effective prayer, is first, persistence. Second, being watchful. And thirdly, being thankful. Amen. Why don't we rise to our feet today? How many of you are going to practice a life of prayer from now on? Motivating you guys to do so. Before we go, I want you to remember this. In prayer, and because we're thankful, here's, here's, the, here's the cool part of it. Thankfulness doesn't reflect a heart of fear, right? When you're thankful, you're, you're smiling. What does that mean? That means that you're not scared. Why aren't you scared? Because your petitions and because your life is in God's hands, not yours. Be very scared if your life is in your hands. Be very grateful if your life is in God's hands. So I'm going to pray for you guys. And once again, thank you for showing up so early. And I pray that you guys come back next week. All right? So let's pray. All I have is Christ. We thank you for being such a good God even when we were such great sinners. And Lord, you've provided us a way. You've provided us a means, a manner of how we can face life. And even though it sounds so kindergartenish, prayer, effective prayer is what's going to help us stand before all these obstacles that face us on a daily basis, before all these obstacles that all of us are going to face Monday morning, before going to work or before going to school, Monday morning when we're at home with our wives or husbands or, or with our kids or with our family or with our father and mother, all these battles that we will have to face 
you have provided for your sons the necessary tools to face them. Lord, make this English congregation at Vida be a congregation, a church that prays. In Jesus' name. And we all say, Amen. Amen. So thanks for hanging out with us. There's, the coffee shop is still open, but, but he, I, I really want you guys to just know who you guys are. So if you see somebody that you don't know, say what's up. And I would love to talk to you guys if you guys are new.